Chapter Eight of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Eight. Descending Harbledown into the Valley of the Stour, we had a fine view over the ancient city of Canterbury, with the cathedral in its midst. The grey towers of its many churches rising here and there above the surrounding roofs, and the green pastures around, with the river winding through them like a silver thread upon green velvet, and the cattle that Sydney Cooper has so often painted reclining on the verdant banks. Rooks were sailing about the cathedral towers, as in Dickens's description of the scene, and the towers themselves. Overlooking many a long, unaltered mile of a rich country and its pleasant streams, were cutting the bright air. Entering the sunny street of Canterbury, dozing as it were in the hot light, we began at once to look about the dear old tranquil streets which David Copperfield held in such affectionate remembrance. The shadows of the venerable gateways and churches. The old houses and the stately grey cathedral, with the rooks sailing about the towers. Entering a stationer's shop on the right-hand side of the high street, and wondering whether it was the shop at which Dickens bought a copy of Crookshank's Bottle in eighteen forty-seven, when on his way to Broadstairs for his annual allowance of sea air, we each purchased a sheet of letter paper embellished with an engraving of the cathedral. Whereon to write to our wives, notifying them of our safe arrival in the capital of East Kent, and then strolled towards the cathedral, looking as we went for old houses which might have stood for the likenesses of those in which Dickens established Mister Wickfield and his amiable daughter and the learned Doctor Strong. We were not long in coming upon a house which we at once assigned to the weak-minded lawyer. Quote, a very old house bulging out over the road, a house with long, low lattice windows bulging out still further, and beams with carved heads on the ends bulging out too. Doctor Strong's house we found, or thought we found, which was perhaps more gratifying than the result would have been if we had known exactly where to look for it, nearer the cathedral. Quote, A grave building in a courtyard with a learned air about it that seemed very well suited to the stray rooks and jackdaws who came down from the cathedral towers to walk with clerkly bearing on the grass plot. Then we strolled into the precincts of the cathedral, where there are some remains of the ancient priory, thinking of the description given by Dickens, writing in the person of David Copperfield, of. Quote, The venerable cathedral towers and the old jackdaws and rooks, whose airy voices made them more retired than perfect silence would have done. The battered gateways, once stuck full with statues, long thrown down and crumbled away, like the reverential pilgrims who had gazed upon them. The still nooks where the ivied growth of centuries crept over gabled ends and ruined walls. Time did not permit us to survey the interior of the cathedral, 
nor did my desire to view everything associated with Dickens and his imperishable creations require me to do so. For, though it is in the shadow of the venerable pile that Peggotty, returning from his weary pilgrimage in quest of Emily, meets the fallen Martha in the dramatic version of the story, the incident is described by Dickens as occurring in some dark nook of the metropolis. We pardon the transfer, however, for the sake of that triumph of the scene-painter's art, the moonlit exterior of the cathedral, with the snow lying deep upon the ground, the white-robed choristers filing past the lighted windows, and the organ pealing forth that grand anthem. Some of the still nooks where the ivied growth of centuries creeps over gabled ends and ruined walls are very curious and suggested to me the idea of portions of Austin Friars and Great St. Helens in the City of London, mixed with the cloisters of Westminster Abbey. From the Green Court, in which the deanery is situated, on the site of an ancient monastery, a long, narrow, covered passage, paved with flagstones, and known as the Dark Entry, crosses the Brick Walk, forming a communication at its eastern extremity with the cloisters, the crypt, and by a private staircase with the interior of the cathedral, and at its western end, through the green court, with a portion of the precincts called the Oaks. It is a gloomy passage even by day, and the ill repute which has clung to it for more than three hundred years causes it to be avoided after dark by all but the strongest-minded persons even now. The story of priestly profligacy illicit love, jealousy, revenge, and crime associated with this gloomy passage and the old house at the corner dates from the reign of Henry the Eighth. The house mentioned was, at the time indicated, the abode of a portly canon, who had in his service as housekeeper a young woman, comely of countenance, neat in her attire, modest in her demeanour, whose name was Ellen Bean, but whom the canon was wont to speak of as Nell the Cook. One evening a young lady arrived at the canon's house, and took up her abode with him, much to the dissatisfaction of the comely housekeeper. To all his friends the canon spoke of her as his niece, and represented that her father had gone abroad, confiding her to his guardianship but doubts of the voraciousness of this statement soon entered the mind of Ellen Bean, who probably knew that the canon's virtue was not equal to his learning, and she resolved to ascertain whether they were well founded. A series of surreptitious listenings at doors, and peeping through keyholes, raised her suspicions to moral certainty. But the pretty housekeeper, though her countenance was overcast with gloom, and her manner became moody, would take no action upon them until she had obtained stronger confirmation. Then she would have a terrible revenge, which should be talked of in Canterbury for many a year afterwards. For the modest look and the prim manner of pretty Nell were but as the snow on Hecla which seems to forbid the notion that hidden fires rage beneath. Assured at length of the young lady's frailty and the canon's infidelity to herself, she sprinkled poison in a game pie, of which both partook, 
and within a few hours afterwards both were dead. The canon and the lady were buried in the nave of the cathedral, and the clergy did their utmost to prevent their fate and the circumstances which had brought it about from becoming the subjects of scandalous comment. Ellen Bean was never seen afterwards, and was supposed to have been sent away. Her victims were yet unburied when it was rumoured through the city that persons passing along the dark entry had heard subdued groans, which seemed to proceed from beneath the flagstones, one of which, beside the canon's house, appeared to have been removed and relayed, the freshness of the mortar being remarked by the persons whom the rumour attracted to the spot. These crossed themselves and shuddered with horror when they heard the groans, and then went their way, and after three days the dreadful sounds were no longer heard. Just a week after the day when they had first been heard, it was on a Friday, a man who passed through the dark entry during the hours of darkness reached his home pale with terror, declaring that he had seen the ghost of the canon's housekeeper. From that time the gloomy passage was avoided after dark. But from time to time strangers who knew not the ill repute of the place, or Canterburians who disregarded it, saw, if they passed through it on a Friday night, the spectral presentment of Nell the Cook, standing by the door of the house in which the crime had been committed. Footnote. This tradition is not yet worn out. A small maimed figure of a female in a sitting position, and holding something like a frying-pan in her hand, may still be seen on the covered passage which crosses the brick walk, and adjoins the house belonging to the sixth prebendal stall. There are those who would even yet hesitate to thread the dark entry on a Friday. Barham. End of footnote. About a hundred years afterwards, the flagstone nearest to that house became loose, and on its being taken up, with a view to its relaying, a vault twelve feet deep was discovered, at the bottom of which was a female skeleton in a sitting position, with a pitcher and a piece of pie-crust beside it. It was surmised that the friends of the canon, having traced the crime to Ellen Bean, and determined that she should die, yet wishing to avoid the scandal of a public investigation, had buried the wretched woman alive, and placed a portion of the poisoned pie in the vault, in order that, if the slow torture of starvation tempted her to eat it, she might suffer before death the agonies to which she had condemned her victims. I am not aware that her unquiet ghost has been seen of late years, but the belief that it haunts the dark entry still lingers in the city, and it would not surprise me to learn that there are persons living in Canterbury who would be found ready to depose that on some Friday night, at some remote period of their lives, they had encountered Nell Cook's ghost in the dark entry. It used to be said that whoever saw the apparition died within a year, but the evidence upon this point would not satisfy a committee of inquiry. Tradition declares that two of the three masons who discovered the skeleton 
were hanged at Tyburn for murdering the third in the time of Dean Bargrave, who died in 1642. But it is not alleged that they had ever seen the ghost, and if their fate was held to have been brought about by the discovery of the decaying remains of Ellen Bean's mortal part, the belief shows a strange jumble of ideas. I do not know how many persons are supposed to have seen the ghost in the course of more than three centuries, but the only person who, having seen it, or being said to have seen it, is recorded to have died within the year, was Charles Storey, who in 1780 was hanged at Oaten Hill, and afterwards gibbeted on Chatham Downs for the murder of a journeyman paper-maker. "'It was Dr. Johnson, wasn't it?' said the curate, as we came out of the precinct, who said he liked to hear ghost-stories, because he regarded them as so many additional evidences of the immortality of the soul. Yes, apropos of the story that was then circulating concerning the second Lord Littleton, I replied. I think the old doctor's faith must have been of the kind that requires stimulants to keep it alive. The anecdote shows that a belief in ghosts is not incompatible with a high order of intellect, observed our friend. How any man of even ordinary intelligence can believe ghost stories, I can't imagine, said the curate. Do you distinguish between ghost stories and ghosts? I asked. I don't see where the line can be drawn, he rejoined, after a little reflection. You don't? said I. Suppose you heard an improbable story about a tiger. Would you say you couldn't distinguish between tiger stories and tigers? Oh, he ejaculated, now I see your meaning. But I should know there are tigers, though I might not believe every traveller's story about them, while I should not believe a ghost story for the sufficient reason that I don't believe in ghosts. Why not? I asked. His only reply was a significant shrug. Do you? he asked with a smile. I neither believe nor disbelieve, I replied. I am disposed to be sceptical as to the ghost stories I hear, but my scepticism does not extend to a denial of the possibility of ghostly appearances and thorough unbelief on the subject seems to me to be inconsistent with belief in the existence of an immortal spirit, the union of which with the body is dissolved by death. "'Did you ever see a ghost?' the curate inquired, after a brief pause, during which the scoffing smile had faded from his countenance. "'No,' I replied though I was once sitting in a room with a friend who seemed to see something which I did not see. It was evening twilight. Opposite to us were two doors, the one on the left hand opening from another room, and the other from the open air. Both were just ajar. There was scarcely a breath of air stirring, yet the left-hand door swung slowly open until it stood at a right angle with the wall, and almost at the moment that it ceased to move, the other door swung open in precisely the same manner. It was just as if some person had entered invisibly at one door and passed out at the other. "'Did you see that?' my companion asked. 
I had seen nothing, and he didn't say what he had seen, but his look and manner conveyed the impression that he had seen something strange and inexplicable. That is something like the delusion of Nikolai, the Berlin bookseller, who thought he saw persons whom others in the room could not see, observed our friend. But have you ever heard a real and well-authenticated ghost story? said the curate. I mean an instance in which a ghost, or supposed ghost, has been seen, or been supposed to have been seen, by the person who told the story. I can tell you one which fulfils all your requirements, I replied. I heard it many years ago from a maternal aunt, whose remains now rest in Beckenham churchyard. She was then on the shady side of fifty, and neither imbued with superstitious beliefs, nor gifted with the imaginative powers which sometimes invest very trivial and prosaic circumstances with an air of romance and mystery. She was returning one night from a visit to a sister, when she saw, or thought she saw, between the churchyard and a thick plantation, a figure draped in white, standing motionless in the middle of the road. Slightly accelerating her pace, she went forward, not without a nervous tremor, and when she had walked a few yards beyond the mysterious object, she ventured to look back. The figure had disappeared, though not the faintest sound had reached her ears. The ghostly figure had previously been seen by several other persons, and was supposed to be the disembodied spirit of a young man who had recently committed suicide, in consequence of a disappointment in love, at the house which the plantation concealed from the road. The faculty of ghost-seeing has been observed to be frequently developed in several members of the same family, and I may add to the preceding story, which gave the curate something to think about as we walked towards the railway station, that my mother, then in her eighty-seventh year, related to me, a few months before her death, a strange incident which I regarded as a delusion. She said that while lying in bed— but in broad daylight, she suddenly became aware of the presence of a double of herself, standing between the foot of the bed and the open door of the chamber, in the full light of the morning sun, the door being midway between the window of her chamber and that of another room, into which it opened. The figure stood there several minutes, without the slightest movement. My mother regarded it attentively, three times closing her eyes, and opening them again to test its reality. Twice she beheld it still standing on the same spot, but when she opened her eyes the third time, it was gone. Such visitations are usually held by the superstitious to portend the speedy death of the person who sees the fetch, but my mother lived several months afterwards. How recollections of the long past are evoked from the cells of memory! Let me tell another ghost story. About fifteen years ago I had my abode for a time on the second floor of an old house in one of those Westminster streets in which many of the aristocracy once had their town residences, and which still retain an air of faded gentility. 
the primary tenant was a middle-aged widower, morose of manner and of irregular and dissipated habits. He lived there alone, keeping no servant, and but for the occasional presence of a pale young woman who moved silently about the house and was scarcely ever heard to speak, seeming to be his own housekeeper. This occasional visitant was said to be a married daughter of the morose man, whose wife had died a few years previously. Two discoveries were made by me very shortly after I became a lodger in that house. The first was that the house had the reputation of being haunted. I found that my children would not leave the rooms after the evening twilight began to darken the landings and staircases, at no time very light and that this disinclination to enter the gloom below was shared, though less openly exhibited, by my servant. On inquiring the cause, the young woman told me that the house was haunted, that they say that he killed his wife with ill usage, and that her ghost walks about the house at night, and has been seen by several persons. I gave no encouragement to this belief, and thought no more about the matter, until something occurred which recalled it in a very forcible manner. The second discovery that I made was that the morose parent of the pale and silent young woman was in the habit of going out about eight o'clock in the evening, and returning in an inebriated condition in the small hours of the morning. On several successive nights, or mornings, I heard this objectionable householder signalise his return by banging the street door, and tramping heavily up the uncarpeted stairs. On the occasion to which I have alluded, I heard him talking as if to himself. I listened, but the footsteps were evidently those of only one person. He entered one of the rooms on the first floor, which he reserved for his own occupation, and for some time afterwards I heard his voice at intervals, now in the low tone of self-communion, now raised to the pitch of drunken or delirious raving. All at once I heard him stumbling up the stairs, ascending them as rapidly as his inebriated condition permitted him to do, but with unsteady steps and staggering gait. He reached the second-floor landing, reeled heavily against the door of my sitting-room, and then began to ascend higher. "'I've got you now!' he shouted, in a tone of savage exultation. "'You can't get away from me now!' What, I asked myself as I listened, could be the meaning of this? The rooms on the third floor were unoccupied, and no footsteps had preceded those of the drunken man up those unused stairs. I heard him enter one room after another, slamming the doors, and then he stood still. "'Where are you?' I heard him say. "'Where have you got to?' There was no reply, and in a few minutes he began to descend the stairs, which he did more quietly than he had gone up, muttering to himself in a tone so low that only the sound reached me, without the sense. I heard him no more that night, and for several days afterwards he was neither heard nor seen. The pale young woman glided noiselessly about the house, and in reply to my questions concerning him informed me that he was very ill. 
when he was able to leave his chamber, he was pallid and nervous-looking, and his hands shook so much that he could scarcely raise to his lips the glass of ale that was before him in his counting-house when I saw him for the first time after the strange incident I have related. Delirium tremens, I said to myself. He must have seen his wife's ghost, was the comment of persons to whom I told the story of that night. That he saw, or thought he saw, somebody or something that eluded him, and had disappeared when he reached the unoccupied rooms on the third floor, there can be no doubt. What, or who it was, remained unknown to every one but himself, unless he shared the secret with that reticent pallidity who seemed to be the only relative or friend who ever entered the house. End of chapter 8